this is what I have created. So they, they have, there you have only basically two options. If someone's saying that he created something, he's or liar or he's stupid. Because if he's a liar, he knows that he was inspired by somewhere because things are not coming out of nowhere. Or, so this is the lying part, or, or he's basically misunderstanding uh, uh, misunderstanding the, the under, uh, misunderstanding the fact that we've been always standing on the shoulders of the giants, like Einstein said about the Newton, and Newton would be saying it about someone else before him when they were exploring the physics. So, uh, just noted us. Unfortunately, we weren't actually recording up until like five minutes ago. I started recording in the middle of that very good uh, talk. So let's go back just a second and say um, we were talking about this idea of the importance of of uh, of recognizing that a, a movement practice is maybe uh, it's just one expression of something larger. And that in order to see it for what it is, you need to, to grab perspectives from other places. But how do you, uh, how do you find the right balance of, of staying within what you can really offer your students while, while bringing in these other perspectives? Do you mind kind of, uh, kind of reviewing what you just said there? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, like if you would take an example of a, of a positioning of your feet in, in, in a practice. So the, one of the most dynamic uh, position with your both feet on the floor, whatever you would be playing basketball, it would be a running or whatever, it would be something like a 60-40 or 70-30. And uh, as, as an analogy, I would say like 70% of your practice should be practice that you cultivate. And a 30% would be your visits around to kind of bring a valuable information into your practice to re-nourish it and reinvent or adapt it according to valuable informations that would be around so you don't sleep in your own bubble. <laughs> you put if you if you create a if you create a stance that it's 50-50, it has the feeling like you are stable, but you are really stable only from one angle. If if your weight is on both feet equally distributed, you're strong only from one side, but from the other side, the other sides, other angles, you're pretty clumsy. And then you also are losing kind of yourself if you're jumping too much from one thing to another. And another extreme is that you only hold your own practice and you think you can invent everything. So that would be like having 100% weight only on one leg. And that means you're extremely unstable and you cannot do many things. You're almost paralyzed. And, you know, if someone is saying that he's an inventor or he found out this or that, there are only two options, really. It means that or that person is stupid or that person is liar. If he, if he thinks that he invented something, if someone says, I have invented this, and this was never here, especially in a movement, uh, in a kind of movement environment, if he's stupid if he's saying it, because we always know we've been inspired by someone, somewhere. We, we are a continuous chain of generations that been working so hard on kind of cultivation of bodily practices. Or you are a liar, and you try to create a gap between your sources and yourself and your students, because if there is a separation between you and your sources, you are creating a bridge. And so you're the only um, passage for the information. You do not allow people to know where the information is coming from. Yeah, that's a personal kind of pet peeve of mine is is seeing people, you know, I, I, I do feel like I've, 
at least independently discovered a, a number of things in my work. Um, but, uh, but of course, a lot of what I do is, is, is traceable to other people. It, it's, it's, it's shifted and changed in my presentation of it because it's, because it's, uh, it's an expression of, of my own goals and my own experience and how it melds with everything else. But I can say I got this drill from from you. I got this drill from Ido Portal. I got this drill from Capoeira. I got this drill from from parkour. I got this drill from this specific person in parkour. And and for me, it's always important to recognize that and to to uh, to give that to my students because I'm not in the business of of trying to download my worldview into them and control their worldview. <laughs> I'm in the business of trying to give them a path to educate themselves. And uh, this is something I've heard you talk about a lot, that I really appreciate your perspective on on how, as teachers, we face the potential of actually becoming the obstacle in the way of our students' growth. So, You know, maybe I would be as narrow-minded... I, maybe I would be just stealing information and I would be holding it for myself if I would not meet the right people. I mean, I cannot judge it, but I had really, I had really great teachers in my life. Mm-hmm. And they always, because they were so strong and so much in access in themselves, they, they didn't have a problem to share where their informations were coming from. I would anyway come to them because of, of, the, of how beautiful these people were. And eventually, after many years of being with, with my I don't know, like with my teacher of communication or whatever, where I finished my PhD, you know, I was not coming for her knowledge. I was coming for her personality. It, mm-hmm. this, it was her personality that changed me so profoundly. Um, you know, I was also studying for many years internal martial arts for the purpose of um, healing and etc. And it wasn't really the master that was changing me. It was it was the instructor that was uh, one instructor, Lazo Horniak is his name, he's Slovakian. He, he's a doctor of uh, psychology and doctor of biology. And he was so a beautiful person that I loved the art because of him, not, uh, not because of the art. And I met people like that many times. And I, I, can, I cannot be more than grateful that I, I was so lucky. So I'm, I'm, I, I consider myself being a millionaire because I met beautiful beautiful people and also people that I'm meeting until now in our workshops our students are just all really incredible beautiful human beings and thanks to them thanks to all these people around kind of um, we, we need to thank that the fighting monkey I believe it's so profoundly interesting for so many people because it's collective consciousness it's it's a collective knowledge that is uh, that is formulating in maybe some I think interesting way and maybe helpful to to some people. Yeah, it's, uh, that's certainly my observation. You know, I I have a huge adm- from admiration for what you guys are doing. I think that in many ways um, there's a, an alignment between what I'm trying to achieve and what you guys are trying to achieve that that is as close as anything else that I that I see out there. So I always highly recommend people uh check you out so i want to go back to a question that uh we didn't uh we, we unfortunately didn't get on the recording but i think it it's a it was a very useful discussion that we should kind of uh dig back into so that people kind of understand the, the basics of this conversation we're having but um what we were talking about was essentially the fundamental why of of, of a practice right what is it that you're seeking through um i called it a movement practice 
um, but whatever we call it, uh, if you could just go back through uh, the, the way that you perceive the, the, the motivation for what we're doing. Um, you know, sometimes the motivation is health. Sometimes for other people is motivation being strong or to win or to be uh, be champion or or it could be many different motives. For for us, it is really the, the only real reason is to can we enjoy more of our life through the struggles that we have or whatever. Can can we be more interested in life? Uh, you know you know that the usual tendency is you 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 encounter something new in your life. It could be um, a meditation, it could be boxing, it could be uh, jujitsu, it could be um, writing, or it could be painting. And you are, I see it in my kids, you know, they meet it first time and it's so exciting and it's so amazing. And over some time, that excitement, that energy kind of decline and you lose the interest and you become bored by it. And we said, with Linda, can we find a way to find this absolutely invisible heroism that you would be excited by something that that you that been around here for such a long time now like let's say you have a repeated practice whatever that would be okay you do you do 30 years of boxing and you're after 30 years of boxing it is as exciting after 30 years as it was in your first day that you are able to see a smaller and smaller details and and your practice kind of um, uh, bypass, not bypass, but your, your practice become the whole universe. You can read through your practice whatever you're meeting in your life. So you, you threw the word heroism out there, which is interesting because um, kind of uh, one of the ideas that I've been playing with is uh, fundamentally we do things because they're meaningful to us. And I, I like this idea of meaningful because in physical practice, we experience joy um, and we experience fun. And those are really powerful motivations for, for what we practice. But we also experience pain. We also experience suffering. We also experience uh, frustration and humiliation and uh, you know being humbled. And all of those things actually seem to be valuable to us, right? It's the enemy, the thing that we're trying to to achieve an existence is not so much like one specific emotion. It's, it's that, that, that life is meaningful, right? It's like when you're, when you're sprinting up a slope over and over again until you feel like you're going to puke, it's like that you're not really having fun. <laughs> but, <laughs> but if you, but if it, if that's uh, helping you approach a goal that you care about, if it's helping you connect with other people, if it's, it's shared suffering, um, it, it's meaningful. It gives you something. And the kind of the, the way that I've thought about, okay, if, if practice is really about something meaningful, what it would be the most meaningful thing that I could aim at? And, and my own kind of personal conception of that is to create the most heroic version of myself, right? To, to craft the person that I would admire. <laughs> yes. But also all the heroes have died. You know that. So well, we I'm going to die too. <laughs> <laughs> they they died earlier, you know. Uh, no, yeah, absolutely right. Um, you know, but we also, um, as a human beings, uh, we we learn for the sake of learning because learning process is so exciting. Mm-hmm. It's sometimes the goal is some the goal is absolutely necessary. You see a meaning in all that struggle, but sometimes the the act of learning, the fact that you understood something, even if it has no meaning at all, it is 
it is very important for our uh, neuromuscular system, for our neurobiology. Uh, we always, what, what I've seen, you know, like we have this effective and natural movement and, you know, like it should not be always effective because if it's always effective, then you lose the proprioceptive variability and means that you're going to be injured all the time. I guarantee you're going to be full of inflammation. Your body, as you, as you do practice, you do um, you do effective practice, means that you are technically correct in what you're doing. It could be basketball, let's say. If you do always only an effective training on basketball, even if you want to be a super champion, your body will have a problem. There has to be time to time something that is absolutely ineffective in order to bring that irregularity, that variability to your joints, because your joints are craving for that variability. Because if you always keep that amazing practice that will make you a champion, you will be injured. It's 100%. We've, we've seen this for the last 15 years. No matter how great your practice is, if it's only that practice, and if that practice does not offer the variability, your body will suffer, your mind will suffer. Okay, a couple of interesting ideas there for me. One is um, variability. Um, and then there's... The, so from my perspective, you can get variability without not being effective, I guess, because you get variability from, from trying out many different things like a, an optimal natural movement uh, practice grabs movement patterns that are movement, not movement patterns, movement, um, modalities that inherently have extreme diversity of movement. Climbing a tree has an extraordinarily diversity of movement. And if you climb many different trees, you're going to get far more diversity movement. Same thing for rock grappling. I really love grappling. And I want to talk to you about that because, uh, you have some really beautiful thoughts on, on that as well. Um, but you kind of like, you're going to experience so many different joint angles and, and lines of force going through your body that you're not going to experience, um, in many other practices. Mm -hmm. So you, you have, uh, if, if you practice with the idea of like practicing all the things that a, that a human being kind of needed throughout our evolution, that's going to be a very diverse package. So I'm not sure that I, I think that that may solve the problem of variability that you're seeing with, with athletes, because athletes are, are really generally uh, playing with a very small segment of the total kind of area of human movement. But I think that, that I also agree with you though, that there's a, that when we get too when we get too oriented solely towards effectiveness, uh, we're missing something really profound about the human experience, which is uh, self-expression. Yeah, but you can also self-express through effective movement. You know, like it's. But um, you know, even if you even if you want to be the best in a soccer, yeah, and that's what you want to do, and you love it the most, nevertheless you should bring other variability than only the variability that is brought through that practice. I know like a football players or hockey players, they have the variability in their game. But sometimes you need to clean up, you need to refresh. And the refreshments has to happen a little more often than it is proposed. Mm -hmm. But of course, you know, like, uh, you know, all the conditioning training and all the all the people that are taking care of the high athletes, they are a little bit, they're out of their ideas. You know, sometimes you get you get tired, or you have a you have a you have a you have an athlete that cannot make a progress. You make him train more. He becomes smarter about the training. What about 
changing a perception, changing a relation to it again, um, having a different quality, different energetical engagement with the game you're playing. There where the creativity comes into a play. Everyone talks about the creativity and then you look at the video and they always do the same and the same thing over and over again. So how, how, how do you define creativity? How do you seek creativity? Where does creativity develop within the, the fighting monkey practice? Well, I don't know about, you know, uh, you know, fighting monkey practice works. Um, you know, we have three pillars. We have anatomy of injury, earthquake architecture, and anatomy of events. These are like kind of three kind of ideas that we are playing with. Mm -hmm. They all come into one pot because the concepts, they need to be tested. And we're testing them through movement situations. Movement situations are obstacle games or obstacle, obstacle environments. If we throw you in that obstacle environment and you see how you're dealing with them. So we're creating kind of fighting monkey decathlon, but you never know what the decathlon will be like. So you cannot really train particularly for that or this, because as we know you're getting better in something, we're gonna change it. So that allows you to, that idea comes from we've been working with um, people that are saving lives of other people, that are professional in saving other people's lives. And we've been discussing about how much strength and what to train and they say, you know, like we have some kind of basics where we kind of can test how is our condition, how is our perception, reflects, how we can work with our bodies, etc. But it's a very small fragment of how much improvisation we work on in order to at least s simulate the complexity of a beautiful world that is around. And these guys need it because if these guys cannot improvise at the spot, someone will be hurt or someone will die or someone from their team will die. And with them we understood all oh, these dogmas that we are creating about this is good training, that is good training, this is good for your spine, we realize, oh my God, no, there can be a certain repeated practice, but the repeated practice is maybe 30% and the variability and improvisation is maybe 70%. And now that new aspect came in, you cannot be creative unless someone is pushing you off the cliff in some way or another. Because you always alone, when you do not discuss anything with anyone, you are super creative. But in the moment someone comes to you and make an interview or puts you in front of the camera or puts you on the stage or start to fight with you, that's a communication. And there you see how much of creative variabilities you have to adapt in that particular moment. So for creativity, you always need a dialogue. You always need a complex environment and you need to offer that complex environment. So it means I am, Rafe is running amazingly um, on the trees through the forest yeah. and I'm going to run after Rafe and I'm going <laughs> to scare him. And as he's scared, he has to find himself out. And if he finds himself out, great. Next game, I'm going to go even more crazy. And this is how we will be evolving together. And of course, variability of this training will create a certain very interesting sediment in your bones, in your ligaments, in your tendons, and in your thinking. You, No one will ever confine you into a box, into a one type of training. You will know you will run into a trouble, but you know it through the experience. You do not know it as a concept. Whew, so many cool concepts in there that I'd like to unpack. Um, one of them is, uh, okay, so... 
the idea of, of variability and, and constantly changing training, right? Um, one of the words that you guys like to use a lot is adaptability. Um, and that's, that's very fascinating to me. You know, my background, uh, in, in thinking about a lot, of this comes from evolutionary biology and anthropology. So I, I tend to look at things from this, this Darwinian frame. So going back to this, this analogy of the, of the hero as a goal, if, if being heroic is the goal, what is the fundamental characteristic of the, of the hero? Is it being really big and strong? Um, I, I don't, I don't think so. I think what it actually comes down to is the capacity to orient towards novel situations. So we live in a world where there's vastly more world than there is us. And we could never even hope to conceive and to hold the whole world in our head. And it's constantly changing. So the fundamental thing is how do I recognize something new and orient and organize my capabilities, whether physical or mental to, to engage with the new. So fundamentally, I think this, this is actually what's articulated in the myth of the dragon. The dragon is, uh, you, you, you take on a dragon because a dragon represents all the different predatory things that, that preyed upon human beings in our evolution, right? It's a snake and snakes were co-evolved with human beings preying on us for like 90 million years. It's got claws like a, like a cat. It's got wings like a uh, bird of prey. And those are primary predators of us. It's fire. Fire is destructive. It's poison, you know? Um, and it's, it's this representation of the chaos of being. And we have to be the, the thing that, that takes that on. And you can't do that unless you constantly expose yourself to things that are unknown. Um, CrossFit, interestingly, they, they, they said in the beginning that they aimed to build a program that prepared you for the unknown and unknowable. Um, and I think fundamentally they made a mistake in how they approached that, but I think that's the right aim. It's the right aim. Yeah, one thing is what we say, other thing is what we do. But nevertheless, you know, we can, in a heroism, we can look at the, with a very beautiful, uh, I would like to bring it back to an history. Yeah. You know, um, Homer wrote an Iliad and Odyssey, yeah. right? Iliad is, uh, I hope everyone knows that because this is, this is a must uh, no literature. So Iliad is about all the great heroes, like Achilles, being engaged with their body and letting their body die in a battle. That was the true heroism. The second half of, um, of the writing is Odyssey. And Odyssey is about the intellect, about the fact of Trojan horse going into, uh, going into city and through the, through the device, through the intellect, through the concepts, through the uh, through the decisive uh, kind of idea to conquer the city that w- could not be conquered with the body. Mm-hmm. Now, the question is, in our modern age, do we really need to keep that separation between physical and conceptual, or can this can be intermingled? Can you be Odyssey, you know, can you, can you bring those two beautiful elements together so your concepts are born out of practical philosophy, out of your practical experience i i'm very sad always hearing everyone talks beautiful words but you know we need to understand we need to read much less we need to listen to other people much less i hope you know you're going to switch on this podcast because it's important that you listen maybe 80 percent to yourself and 20 percent or 30 percent outside because we listen so much outside that we forget about what is our own voice and what is that our formulation of ourselves and that's why we always repeat the practice and thinking of other people rather than being ourselves 
there's a there's an idea I've come across recently that human beings are information foragers. Uh, the dopamine system in the brain, uh, which basically uh, dopamine is what reward. It's not necessarily what makes you feel good, but it's what what entrains behavior, what re- causes behavior to be repeated. The dopamine system is set up to make you find things in your environment that helped you get food in the past, but the thing that helped human beings get food and mates and everything else was information. So we're addicted. We have a, a tendency to be addicted to novel information. So something like Twitter, you go on Twitter and you see a little bite-sized piece of some information. You can go on there and just it, it just it rewards your brain over and over and over again. Without actually, uh, um, without actually delivering any deep nourishment. So one of the things that I've been working on in my own practice is letting the brain be fallow, right? Like a field, right? You can't be constantly harvesting things from the field. You need to oh, just complete you completely. Yeah. So you need to, if you want to, and I say this to people who come to my workshops too. You know, I see these guys who go from one workshop to another workshop to another workshop to another workshop to another workshop, you know, maybe do 50 workshops in a year. And I'm like, how do you ever absorb that? How do you like, how can you know the worth of the workshop that you just went to? If you're filling your head, if the person is smart, it's possible because you can, you can be in all of them. If you're well settled in yourself, if you are, but you're, you're probably talking about people that they, looking for themselves and not knowing exactly and just shopping around um, you know but in any way I love both you know like imagine that someone goes to 50 workshops a year it's so interested that maybe yeah. a transformation will be allowed later on so it, it's not necessarily bad but I, I, I do understand what you're talking about it's just this idea of, of giving giving a practice some time to develop you know, you've talked yeah. about the incubation period for the tools that you guys bring out with, uh, with, um, with Fighting Monkey. And, and it's the same idea for me. It's like if you go and you, you absorb the information from something, like uh, it, it's like you can make a surface level change to your brain by absorbing the information, but it doesn't become permanent. It doesn't become owned until you, you play with it, until you fight with it, until you struggle with it, until you implement it and embody it. And then then it becomes something. But if you if you keep going to the beginning of the process and never go through the process a little bit deeper, um, I think that, that you're almost, you can be engaging in something that's addictive without actually being nourishing. Yeah, you're right. You know, I, I got my permission to teach certain aspect of uh, practice after 12 years. Mm-hmm. And I never really in my age, I questioned it. I felt like that was correct. Yeah. I, I would never believe like, oh, that's a little bit too long. I mean, who is going to invest 12 years of their, of their life and payment and, uh, I don't know, and engagement and then waiting when I'm going to have the permission. But I loved it. It was really great. And until I really started to teach, it was maybe 15 or 17 years after my initial start. But, you know, in the moment, my students, they met me and I was explaining about the joints and rehabilitation and use of the joints. I maybe made maybe made like million and a half squats. So when someone is talking about the 10,000 repeating a movement, you're becoming a master, it makes me a little bit laugh, you know. When I made the first 100,000, I was feeling like, yeah, I got it. After 200,000, I thought, wow, now I really got it. When I did like 300,000 squats, I said, wow, now I can teach it. When I got around million squats, you know, when I look at it back, then I thought like, oh my God, I have no idea. 
And when it became more, I really start to understand how, how, how little I know about it. But what I'm sharing is which different states and landscape happened through that period when I was younger, when I'm older, and how it's possible that now I'm over 40 and I still can do six hours of training, not anymore every day, but let's say I, I, I have several hours of training nearly every day throughout the year, even if I have a family, even if I have to travel. So I think, I think it is necessary to take time. It is necessary, but it doesn't mean you have to wait to teach until you're completely ready. What my, um, what my teacher of education, Ludmila Mahachov, she was, she was considered to be a, a legend in communication training and psychology. She, she, she saw in me like maybe her next generation, uh, someone who could replace her later on. So she was educating me for eight years. But she led me to teach very early. She said, Joseph, I, I know you are not ready, but it would be good if you start to gain an experience as a teacher. So on the other hand, uh, she knew I'm not ready, but she allowed me to, to teach. So there was like a two people. There's like a, this Chinese master. He doesn't allow. He, he gives me permission after 12 years. And there's this other master. And she says, no, you don't know anything, but please start to do it so you can learn from your failures. But the beautiful thing is that she was in most of my classes. She was sitting there, a little small woman with the glasses, and she was observing what I'm doing. And at the end of the class, she said, Yoshko, please come here. I need to give you a little feedback. And that's how I could grow. And that was very, very wonderful. So, you know, everything can work both equally. But if you have only one or only another, it could be a problem. It could be a bigger challenge. Yeah, there's a concept that I like of of within my practice, I think about widening and deepening. This is sort of tangentially related, but I think it connects to some of the themes in the conversation. Uh, if you go back to that, that analogy of standing with 70% of your weight on one leg and 30% on the other leg, it's like there are things, in order to learn certain lessons, you have to go deeply. You have to, you have to go through the struggle. And it's like you need to choose uh, some pillars of what you do. And, and maybe there's some arbitrariness in what those pillars are, but you choose your pillars and you, and you keep fighting to gain, even though it's hard there, because you learn something there. But then, so there's, I guess I see it as like there's two ways to be uncomfortable in your practice. You're uncomfortable because you've, you've tried something and you've reached the plateau phase. And then it's, it's, it's nice to go somewhere else. Or you're, you're uncomfortable because you're exposed to something new. And you have to go back to being a novice. And it's like once you once you're a master, once you're you're really good at something, it's like it's uh it's an ego hit to go and realize that there's lots of things that you suck at. Um and so we need to to find this balance of 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 widening of widening, and that's the thirty percent to me. Like go try the new things and then deepening. Continue to dig deeper and, and explore. And um and I'm not sure how these two thoughts connect, but these both seem to be related to what you were just saying. So maybe you can help me uh, connect them. But the other aspect of this as far as the teaching is, you know, he who teaches learns or she who teaches learns. I always tell my students, I, I can't own the material that I show you, right? A lot of it comes from, from other people in any ways, right? And maybe some of it's generated by elements of the mind that we all share if we just tapped into. So... It's this experience, this moment that I've, that I've shared with you. Take, take it and, and teach it right away if it works for you because, because you'll understand it better. You'll know it better. And then you can come back and, and share with me what you've learned and I can be stronger. 
But what I ask is that they, they have a humility about, about what they're teaching, that they don't assume that they understand the thing completely, that they, that they don't take on my name and, and say, this is, this is exactly this. They just say, this is a thing that I took from this. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a balance that, that we can find there that is, uh, maybe the best in a, in a specific moment in a specific context in any sense. And it, So, do you want to speak to that idea anymore? Um, try to connect those two ideas for me. Oh, they are inter- <laughs> they're already interconnected. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely, this is one in the same unity. The way you are explaining it. Okay, beautiful. Um, so, it seems like we have a little bit of a, a low with that idea. Let's move on to something that I really want to get into with you because um, I think this is I I, I really think there's a, a, an enormous parallel between the EMP system and the, and the fighting monkey practice, uh, on a lot of the things that we do. Um, I come from the parkour world and, and martial arts and you come from the dance world and, and also martial arts and, but very different experiences of those worlds. I come from much uh, from a dance world. Well, you come from that. <laughs> What's that? I never, studied, I never studied dance, but dance, uh, you know, when I, when I finished my, uh, uh, athletic career or whatever you might call it, I started to study art. And uh, I wanted to be an actor because I thought that's so so much easier to get the money and become famous. But that also didn't suit me, you know, because I, I thought like, okay, you know, in Slovakia, I'm going to be a greatest known actor. I said, for how many people I will be famous for? Six million people that really kept me being depressive. So I said, oh, uh, I need to move somewhere else. And the first kind of transition, possible transition was like a physical theater. And physical theater in the beginning of 90s was like, wow, it was a real boom. And I said, wow, if this is going to get me to travel, I'm going to do that. And that's how I got into a kind of dance world. And it was a great bridge for me to kind of discover universe and not spend even a euro from my pocket. So that, that, is, that is the dance background. But I must tell you that all the dancers were very angry when I was getting a job because they said, oh, this guy even don't know how to dance, but he's getting all of our job. <laughs> so if they hear that you say like he's a dance background, they will go like, oh, no, he doesn't have any dance background. This guy doesn't know how to, how to dance. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, the, the other thing I, that I didn't mention there that I, that I was thinking about earlier was that you do have that, um, that background in, in sort of structured sport that, uh, that I don't have as much of. Um, but one of the areas in the fighting monkey research that when you talk about kind of, uh, the fundamental priorities are the development of rhythm and coordination and then kinetic yeah. potential and then power exploration. That's sort of the four things that, that, that you guys do, um, uh, as far as I've heard you describe it anyways, rhythm is something that I've struggled with understanding because I didn't have a musical background and didn't have a dance background, but I'm particularly in a research phase right now where I'm trying to understand the role of rhythm and how we, uh, how we develop rhythm in relationship to, uh, both martial arts, but also particularly parkour. I think it's really under, it's, it's under conceptualized how much of a role control of rhythmic potential has within parkour. And so I really want to dig into this subject of the role of rhythm with you because I think it's, it's incredibly important for, for my audience and it's incredibly important for really for, for movers in general. And I think the dance world, um, which you've experienced more than me, even if it's not your, your official background, uh, has something to teach us perhaps. So if you could tell me a little bit more about how you conceptualize rhythm within the fighting monkey practice, um, I'd be very, very interested to hear that. Okay, so the, our developmental circle, or 
anything basically is, as you mentioned rhythm coordination kinetic potential power exploration and the strength but we leave the strength for other people because we do not understand or we do not want to be doing so um, you know when I've seen your video or you posted a video lately like uh, this uh, compiled years of running in the forest you know yeah. it had a so, you know, like you, you can conceptualize about it or, or not, you know, like your body has it or it doesn't, everyone can see. So many people call themselves movers, you know, even if they would be doing handstand or even if they would be doing a squatting, they are movers. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, so we were doing something, something in our class, in our workshops. I said, oh, guys, oh, you're such a great movers. Oh, can we please open the space? Can you please move? And so, you know, like you got people that would maybe come and do some combos, some choreographed little movement sequences and i said to them oh that's very beautiful uh, could you do also something else if you consider yourself being such a great mover and of course what you get as a result is no besides what was learned and what was really well wired in their bodies they cannot move they cannot shift their weight how many dancers you see that they stay static with their feet on one spot and moving their spine and their hands and moving their head but they do not shift the weight. they do not move through space so rhythm must be um, or should be um, should be defined how you take your composition through time space. It cannot be confined in one spot, especially when we talk about the body. Let's say if it's a body and the drum, you know the sound of the drum is it's traveling. It's traveling around. There is a certain vibration. If you do not create that vibration with your body that goes beyond your body. You are not a mover. You have. You should not be calling yourself a mover. You know, it's. it's it, it, you, we, we like to use the word of moving, but you know, like we do exercising. That's what we are doing. I still. I'm. I'm old man. I'm old man. I'm. I'm a really elderly athlete. But if I move in the space, I'm moving. I can mm-hmm. still jump. I can still run. I can still roll. I can still improvise. I can come up with things that are, that are irregular. What I see around that everyone copies their master. Please don't do that. This will bring you a lot of troubles. Don't do that to yourself. Yeah. It makes you good because you're repeating it. So of course you get you get a flow from it. But I am not interested in flow. So that would be something that we would be really exploring. There is no like isolate and integrate and then and then improvise. No, improvise immediately. You know, like you if you're in the school. You're in the school, in acting school, and they and they would tell you, oh, don't act now. First, you have to learn four years how to act, and only then you can go on the stage and and perform. No, from the very first day, you know what we will be doing? We open up the stage and say, please come onto the space so we can observe you how you are in the space. In other words, please, we open up space for you. Please and try to move, move. However, just see what what what's there. Test it immediately. In other words, you are learning language. Are you going to wait to go to a market to, to deal about the prices only when you know the language? No, you learn first words, you go into the market and you start to kind of fight for the prices of, of, of uh, bananas or of, you know, the nuts that you're buying. You say, oh, you don't, you know, I, don't, I didn't speak well Greek, but I immediately went outside on the street and I was improvising. I was trying to talk to people and through that improvisation, this absolutely imperfect Greek language improvisation, I learned the language. So in the world is gonna tell me I need to make that gradual steps to learn the language. No one in the world. I go on the street and I gonna learn the language immediately through encountering the complex universe. 
Please yeah. don't make me sit in the school like my kid is in the school. My kid is sitting seven hours in the school. Poor, poor boy. I would like to beat all the, all the teachers there. <laughs> you kicked over about 10 cans that I would love to discuss. We could probably discuss them for an hour. Um, so much. I want to go back to the rhythm thing, but I need, really need to, to run with some of the stuff about uh, about movement in general. And um, uh, one of the, let's let's start with this. You said you don't like this idea of isolate, integrate, and improvise. And this is something that I've discovered. Uh, and I think this is one of those areas that there's so much commonality between what you're doing and what I'm doing. When I I used to I came from a gymnastics background, right? So it was all building these little drills, right? You start you start doing drills on you know day one that you're looking at being able to build a skill that's maybe three years down the line or four years down the line, right? You're doing rolls, backwards rolls, because that becomes a back extension roll because that teaches you how to do a giant. So everything's built on this, this very, um, this very technical basis. And I took that into the parkour world and I developed these drills and they seemed very effective. And I had this, this whole kind of paradigm around here. I'm going to, I'm going to start with this concept and this, this movement and this drill. And then they're going to have this problem and I'm going to add this. I'm going to do this. And so I took people out into nature, had them. Okay. Let's, yeah. let's start moving around in a tree. And all of a sudden they blew up my whole schema of how I was teaching because they kept learning the thing before I was going to teach it. Uh-huh. And so I, I yeah. sorry, go ahead. And so I said, well, well, wait, how do I leverage that? That's pretty cool. How do I create, how do I trick people into learning things? And then, um, as I was doing that, some of my students came to me and started mentioning the the, the concept of dynamic systems theory, right? And uh, I know I, I've asked you whether you whether you're influenced by that, and I think you've said that you're not super familiar with it. But what you do seems to be perfectly in line with these these concepts of ecological thinking around how we teach movement. But uh, so we have um, so so what I do is before you learn how to do a a specific vault you're asked to go through a course that requires some types of vaulting and see what you self-organize. Mm-hmm. And then I try to try to get you to start understanding the principles about why you would want to apply vaults in a specific way. And then I build the tool as the last thing. So rather than isolate, integrate, improvise, which I think is a, is a good heuristic for understanding different elements of practice, but it's very mm-hmm. bad if you think of it as a specific progression. The the thing that you should start with is do the thing and then refine out and understand the principles of how you do the thing. And then then you can start really building specific tools. But if you start at the specifics, it's like um, it's like trying to build an orange from vitamins. Yeah. It's like... <laughs> Uh, I, you know, I, I have a, you know, like if, I, if we would talk about a fighting monkey, you know, I don't, I don't want a mysis in laboratory. I don't want a mysis in laboratory with good tools. I want a rats from the street to be playing around because the rats, they have always a thicker cortex. They will always more variabilities than the, than the lab rats. You know, the, the mice that been developed like white mice that we are training there and we study their brains. No, just take a rat and you will see what happens because the rat is in just a very complex environment. And also, on the other hand, you know, like uh, uh, you see what I said, isolate, integrate, uh, improvise. It's maybe not easily applicable for gymnastics. But also, I, you know, even if it's so popular, I must say I'm not very interested. You know, yeah. I, I, I don't know what I'm going to get out of making gymnastics. 
I will get my strength in a completely different way. And, you know, I, I've seen boxers that they've never done any of those stuff and they're pretty incredible. I've seen runners that are absolutely incredible. I've seen basketball players jumping and, and, and doing incredible stuff without doing any special stuff. I've seen jujitsu guys never lifting themselves but being absolutely incredible on the floor. And, you know, like we, what is interesting about a culture that we can popularize something and overblow it. And everyone is like a sheep and immediately say, oh, if everyone is doing it, I must be doing it as well. So, of course, you know, I, I cannot say I, I'm not saying there is nothing good about gymnastics. Gymnastics is absolutely incredible. You know, Linda, she's been a champion in sport gymnastics. Her sister been a champion in sport gymnastics. There are these metals uh, being on the wall and everything. So they pass through the training. But um, and so I love it. My kids are doing it. But I don't think it's, it is a must be. It's one of the many things that you can be doing. And I believe I need a, I need a mover. I need someone who can, who can just engage in play rather than being good in that or this. I mean, that's how I feel about it. Yeah, so, oh man, I'm very interested in this. When I was first trying to conceptualize and think about all this stuff, I was teaching gymnastics, right? I was teaching gymnastics and, um, and CrossFit came out and they talked about this idea that that gymnasts learn sports faster than their athletes. So as parkour has developed, and I've been involved in the parkour community, I've always kind of like been asking myself, how how is parkour developing relative to kind of the level that uh, that gymnastics is at? Like imagine taking the best gymnasts in the world and the best parkour athletes in the world, and we're going to switch them, and they're going to have to train in the other sport for a year, and we see who who's going to like be stronger. And for a long time, it's 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 obviously the gymnasts, right? Because you know, you're talking about a pedagogy that's like 300 years old in some sense. And it, it has a lot of layers of sophistication to it. And you had a fairly large talent pool at that point, And you have, um, you, you have athletes who've been training for 40 hours a week for years and years and years with, with coaches helping them. So theoretically, they should be absolutely way beyond uh, what these self-taught parkour athletes can do. But basically, these parkour athletes now, they're, they're the street rats, right? Like if you look at the best gymnasts in the world, they're doing, you know, like maybe you're going to see a dismount. That's a triple backflip with a, uh, with a full twist. And that's on a, on a perfect specially designed bar with all the matting that you could need around you. But there are parkour athletes now who are throwing triple backflips outside. And that's not necessarily what they specialize in, right? They don't just do bars. <laughs> like there are parkour athletes who are comparison because I, I, I I'm, I'm kind of lost there I, I can do only what I do and what I like to do but I'm just saying like let's not overblow one thing and another just let's be reasonable about everything I, I guess whatever you do and however you do it it's 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 necessary but for me I for me what I've seen and what I experienced I always kind of what people were around me or people that I was interested in they just they just done what they had to do, you know, like cold water. You just just go cold water or, you know, like if you if you have to do some other stuff, just do that stuff. You know, like if you have a painter, just please paint. If you're a football player, then please play a football. If, if you're a basketball player, just love to play a basketball. And if you love it very much, you'll be a champion. You know, I was I was I was just one week ago. I was with um, with Olympic champion and judo. And uh, and he says, you know, I was sick doing judo i was sick i was so obsessed by doing judo that of course i became a world champion of course i became an olympic champion because i just could not think about anything else than judo and he was doing only and only judo nothing more than that and he was 17 years old 
he was beating everyone. He was a world. He was an Olympic champion, 17 years old. This is a this is a changing of history because he loved the judo. Judo was his world, and everything was in, uh, kind of embraced in that in that in that idea. And I loved it very much. You know, like when you see Marcelo Garcia. I mean, he's pretty amazing. And what he would say: Oh, please do more jiu-jitsu if you want to be good in jiu-jitsu. And you have these amazing football players, and they say: Yeah, just do football, please. So it's like I am not creating fighting monkey in order to tell you, oh, if you don't do fighting monkey, you will not be good in what you're doing. You need to do what we are doing. No, fighting monkey is there or this, all this research is there. You know, if something goes wrong, your knee goes wrong or you, your perception is not there or you're losing interest in your, in your practice or then when this training comes in. And that's the variability that we are creating to enhance your own practice in whatever you want to be. I don't want to take responsibility on what you want to be. I don't want to be hanging with another 500 students and telling them all the time what to do. It's, it's tiring. Sorry, was the last thing you said broke up on me a little bit? It's... You see, I, I don't want to be telling to other people what they should be doing. Mm -hmm. It's tiring. It's I tiring. Yeah, yeah, it's very tiring. I mean, I, I, I like to inspire you, but you have to do what you have to do. I don't know what you have to do. I, I don't know how you should be doing it. Maybe they're, you know, I always meeting these people, uh, these conditioning trainers for ATP tennis players and then these national teams and everyone knows what to do. But I just don't think like they really know. I mean, there is amazing knowledge, but you know, there is also so much of what we do not know. And I am more on the side of, not knowing much, you know, I, I can maybe help, I can contribute to what I believe, but you know, like you have to do the job yourself pretty much as every athlete has to take responsibility for their own development and sensing how they are aging and where it's too much or where it's too few, unless the chemistry and pharmaceutical help gets involved and then it's a whole another story. So, um, a couple interesting ideas there to me. One is, um, We're talking about specialization in sport, right? So if you want to be good at something, that's the thing you have to do the most. You have to be obsessed with it. You have to love it. But then there's this this element where, uh, you know, you, you say diversity breeds immunity. Mm -hmm. right? If you want to survive in the sport for the long term, uh, s there's times where you need to add something in. You need to you need to you need to widen that practice. It's like you need to do your seventy percent on the thing that you're that is your your uh, your central practice. But then you need to go and explore things so they can they can keep you wide enough. Like my orientation with with what I'm doing is not really to be a a ancillary training for athletes. It's it's to provide something that creates motivation for training for the ninety nine percent of people who who aren't going to be a specialist athlete. But I think that there's a fundamental thing that we can understand about how a human being needs to have this breadth of capacity in order to sustain themselves over the long run. And what we see with, with elite athletes is it's like you may be a, a world champion at 17, but what are your knees like? What's your discs like at 30? And, you know, they're willing to pay the price for, for it, so it's all fine. You know, I, I am I'm also very interested, you know, in other workshops, we have people that are or 19 years old or 65 years old. And you know what is beautiful? They all find themselves easily doing the practice. And that's so beautiful. So you can have a whole range of people kind of experiencing the beauty of discovering more who they are. And this is really what, what, what inspires me the most. I mean, we are talking about the athletes 
you know, I, I, I love them, but I don't really, I don't think like they are more special than many other people. There are many other people that are doing also incredibly amazing stuff. This is also, you know, like what culture blows out. You know, we over glorify the athletics because, you know, like we are the puppets of managers and we are puppets of great campaigns and everything. But, you know, if you love it, just do it. And, and if there is a problem, try to solve it. You know, there are many people that do athletics and, and, and they do only that one thing and they're very specialized and they're still very beautiful and open-minded and they never get injured and all is fine. Some people are open-minded in it and they get injured. Some people are narrow-minded and never get injured. You know, like there, is, there are no rules. I mean, we try to make rules like this or that, but you know, there are no rules. We, we have no idea. So, you know, I, I, I believe if you love what you do and it serves the purpose and you finish with six hernias in your bag when you, when you do jiu-jitsu and you love it and that's what you what, that's the price that you pay for it, it's fine. I mean, it's okay. You know, even when, uh, again, when it, when, we come to, when it comes to judo and we've been, we've been talking to that famous person, he, so he was saying, you know, the doctor came, okay, you have a big hernia, we need to operate. And he says, how long it's going to take me to recover? And he says, three, four months. I say, oh, I rather don't operate because I have a competition. He loves more the judo and he will sacrifice his body for the judo. He doesn't care about his body. And it's also beautiful. That's a real hero. Hero would engage in a combat and dying in that combat. Wow. Incredible. If this is what he wants, amazing. And if he comes to me, the, the Olympic champion, and he's looking for something. I am here not to change his vision. I am here, okay, look, do you need a little bit better knees or you will need a little bit better perception or do you want to train speed? Okay, let's be creative about that training. That's only what I can do. And then he sees how it functions, how it works, how it can be applied if you can and in, in which context. That's the whole deal. Sorry, what's that? I'm talking a lot, I'm saying. <laughs> well, it makes for a very easy interview, right? I, I just have to say a few things and then you're going to run and, 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 and say some beautiful things. The only problem I have is that you say so many things that I, that I want to respond to and I'm not sure where to, what to grab onto. But um, I wanted to go back to uh, the role of rhythm again because uh, this is something I really like. I, I'd like to come and, and, and do some research with you guys and like let's come out into the, to the trees with me and, and throw, uh, like throw some challenges and, and look at this because, uh, I haven't seen anyone describe what's going on there. And it's, it's so fundamental because I'll just give you a little bit of what I'm thinking about. And then maybe you can, you can, you can tell me if I'm barking up the wrong wall or, or, or how it, how it, uh, how it works with what you're doing. But so I've, I've, I'm trying to study flow, right? So if we're, if we're looking at at movement performance for particularly in the natural parkour context or parkour context. Yeah. If it's not about the tools, right? It, it's not like, let's start building a bunch of like the specific skills. And this is again, okay, I'm going to go on a tangent here, but you were talking about the problem with, with movement, all the movers. It's like, uh, the way that I see it is it's like, uh, it, it's a lot of people who are, who are collecting tricks they're collecting tools, but they don't know what those tools are for. Like so much of of moverness is basically skills that come out of capoeira or skills that come out of dance, but they've been divorced from the context. And I, I went into capoeira myself, like wanting to get those specific movements. Right? It's like I wanted to have uh, an owl with the kirijihins or whatever. 
But then you realize that that what makes capoeira really incredible and what it makes it something that that can teach you so much about movement and about life is the game, right? It's 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 you're dancing, you're fighting, you're doing body to body work, you're uh, you're engaging with music and rhythm and culture, and all these things are built into this. And it's like so now you have a whole huge kind of group of people who who can do some beautiful variations of those tricks that come out of that tradition, but they don't have the rhythm. They don't have the connection. They don't know how to interact with another person. They don't know how to be uh, doing partnership. And so what I think is like, I, I just always imagine this idea of the, the, um, the finger pointing at the moon, mm. right? Everyone's looking at the finger right now is, is what it seems like to me. So, so what I'm trying to do within the, the parkour context is start figuring out what the moon is. Mm-hmm. And and so I've I've broken it down to uh, these principles of flow that I've that I've tried to discover, which are rhythm, um, direction, control of the direction of your inertia, displacement, how far your body's moving up and down over things, um, mm-hmm. structure, how your structure is interacting with the surface so that you're in the optimal position to continue moving, and then risk management. So within rhythm, um, there's this thing about well, so if parkour is based on, on being able to run, right? You're running through the environment. Yeah. Mostly. Well, running has a, has a rhythm. It's a gait pattern. And then when you're running up to do something complex, then you're going to have to manipulate that gait pattern and, and the tempo, right? The tempo is going to have to shift and the time between the beats is going to have to shift a little bit. And then as you get into complex skills, you have specific rhythmic phrases that are happening within, within the, the, the movement. And you have to be good at blending, at going from one rhythm into the next rhythm and setting yourself up to, to take on the rhythm after that. And so there's this beautiful element of how do we understand the manipulation of tempo, the manipulation and, and how to recognize the shifts in rhythm so that you, you recover back. What I see a lot when people are not doing, uh, are, are doing parkour that doesn't have that aesthetic, aesthetic quality is that what they're unable to do is sort of control one rhythmic phrase and and then end up in the next rhythm. So so I'm trying to really develop a more detailed uh detailed idea of what this is and and I I you know very specifically interested in how how are you guys thinking about the way that you're asking athletes to develop rhythm and what are if we go deeper than just that one word what is the pieces of it that you're looking at what is it that you're asking for people to develop we don't we, we don't we don't ask anything but uh, what we are doing we, what we've been doing for the last 15 years we've been doing a cross motion analysis and cross motion analysis is really understanding through different cultural expressions and through different bodily motions is what we have in what certain different expressions have in common what different sports they have in common biomechanically and what could be the what could be a kind of uh, how we could set ourselves in motion and where our joints um, slower and have a little bit more energy to carry on and um, that is about understanding how we organizing our three body weight centers how we can rhythmically organize our upper body and with relation to our lower body how we positioning our feet in relation to subject object uh, then having rhythm ourselves, but having rhythm also in relation to other people and, and uh, other environments. And then what you are, you are interested in flow. 
And I'm interested, you, you get a flow, to get a flow is not very difficult. It's, you just have to repeat certain aspects many times. But I'm interested in no flow. So what we, for example, is one thing is you're training, um, you're training certain um, rhythmical organization, but you're breaking down the experience. So what I would be doing as a, as a structure of the class is that I would break many times. People will start to feel very good about what they are doing, and I would do timeout. Exactly what you would see in a basketball match. So, you know, like when the other team is getting in a good rhythm, all the other trainings say, oh, my God, if I let them go, they will destroy us. So he does timeout. So he breaks down the rhythm. And usually what is the problem of the team is to pick up that amazing rhythm they had before. <laughs> and so in our movement situation in a fighting monkey, what we would be doing is that you start to feel good about it. I shut it down and I restart it again. And as it comes on, I shut it down and I shut it down again and then I let it go and then I let it go amazing so you remember it and then I shut it down again. And this creates a really a lot of trouble for the body because you are starting, stopping, stopping, starting. But after a while, you start to understand in that irregularity, in that impossibility of that irregular musicality, you're finding a flow. You're finding a flow that can go on and off. And that's very, very important. When you do a run, um, like when you did run in a video, it is over the time you can get it. But I would need you to stop, restart, um, making someone to catch you, uh, not use your arm, use your arm. So going from impossible to possible and alter it in a random way to see how you're coping with difficulties. And there I will understand really if you do understand the rhythm, if it is embodied in you, if you, you can perform biomechanically sound. That would be the that would be the whole thing because when you see a when you see a basketball player, um, it's not only that he can jump high. You know, like they say, okay, if you do weightlifting, you jump highest. Yes, you are probably the biggest uh, jumper in the world. But if someone is um, uh, if someone is defending you, and you don't know how to find rhythmically a space for you to jump and throw the ball, it's your biggest jump is for nothing. You can be the fittest person in the world, but. If in communication you cannot find the right rhythm to open up the space, then all that strength, all that power that you've been building up so for many years is absolutely useless. It became completely helpless. Yeah. This is one of the central things in, uh, in martial arts, of course, is picking up, understanding the opponent's rhythm, breaking your own rhythm so they can't perceive it. And then exactly. finding the way to manipulate the rhythm so you can, you can actually land that strike. It's like, you may be able to, to punch the hardest in the world, lift the heaviest weight in the world, jump the highest in the world. If you can't control the rhythmic aspect, you can't apply it. You can't achieve it. But of it. course, amazing would be if you have both. Let's say you're yeah. the strongest in the world and you have the best rhythm in the world. That would be really great. There's like internal married to external and you get a, like a super athlete. The mm. problem is, you know, like that we have only a certain amount of time and energy. Yeah. Of course, if you spend too much time on strength, when are you going to be learning your game? So, you know, I, I see these 15 years old boxers and they, you know, they do only boxing because they love it so much. They, they look like spaghetti. And then you have the other guys that they would, would like boxing, but they would also like to have a strong punch. And so they spend some time also on the strength. And you already see they are missing in comparison to these 15 years old boxers. So, you know, like what would be, you need to look for the, your right balance. I think the strength is amazing. I mean, if it can contribute to your game, Super. If you have time for it and energy, amazing. But it needs to be married with that kind of internal understanding, this kind of softness. And also, you know, how much of strength you can do. Your body can take only certain amount. 
uh, of stress. You know, we always say this, we always, this is so popular also, you know, like anti-fragile and all this. You know, body is very fragile. No, no, everyone talks about how strong we are. But did you see how many times the body broke down? Most of the time. But no one wants to talk about it. You know, we, when, we, when we talk about these great guys, these great athletes or whatever, we only talk about those that they didn't get injured. But we do not talk about all these 90% of everyone else that is having a serious troubles with their bodies. So we make this urban legend about, oh, our body is anti-fragile and we can stress it over and over again. No, you cannot stress it over and over again. It's impossible. You will get really depleted from your energy. Your body will wear off. Yeah. Well, I mean, Nassim Tlaib says that Organic systems are always anti-fragile to a point, right? Yeah, very much. There's nothing that's that. Uh, there's nothing that's um, that's infinitely anti-fragile, right? There's no real hydra. So, what we're trying to do in our physical practice is to is to make ourselves more anti-fragile, right? To make ourselves embody that ability to to respond well to stress. Um, what's interesting, though, and uh, this is just a, a kind of a tangent, but it's something on the top of my head is we make this mistake of assuming that, that fitness is health, right? We see the guys who have, you know, ripped abs running super fast speeds in the hundred meters. And we think those are the healthiest guys, but to be the best, you always have to be stressing yourself at the very limit of your organism's capacity to adapt, mm-hmm. which means that, um, that in some sense you're actually making you you you're becoming maybe anti-fragile to a certain form of stress, but when you mm-hmm. push too far in any one direction, you actually become more fragile. Uh, a lot of uh, like um, you know, I was talking recently to, uh, to some MMA guys, and they're saying that like you know at the highest levels of training, a lot of times the guys are constantly getting flus and colds. Right? Mm-hmm. They're always sick. They're training super hard. They're stressing their body out. They're body to body with a lot of other people all the time. Like bugs go around. Um, mm-hmm. I had the same experience, you know, uh, when I started this business, I was trying to train as hard as I could and, and do this and have a kid and figure out my marriage and do all these things. And uh, I, I had like eight colds in a year. So this goes back to this idea of how do we create the breadth that we need in our practice to allow ourselves to pursue the things that we want to pursue. I think this is fundamentally kind of at the heart of the conversation that 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 is behind what what maybe both of us are doing because in order to be in order to be the best athlete I have to train athletics but I also have to to take care of health so that I can actually sustain the athletic training and and if we're you know I'm not I'm not in in the um I'm not in the pursuit of any gold medals so I don't want to you know there's no sacrifice of of like let's let's have it right now it's like well what about how do I become the thing that can can stay the best over the longest period of time? This is something yeah, that possibilities. Yeah, I would like to get a golden medal from my kids. <laughs> yeah, if, if I could get that one, I would be like, wow, happy. And from my friends, yeah, and from my and if I can get gold medal from them, then I go like, wow, that's something amazing. You know, like as you get a medal, but no one cares. I mean, they care for a little while, but if you stop your sports, it's all gone. No one cares about it. Yeah. A lot of times the guys who get the medals don't care themselves. Uh, one of the most interesting conversations ha- I've had was with a powerlifting world champion, AJ Roberts, who broke the world record in the squat twice. And uh, he tortured himself for two years to get to that point where he, he broke the, the world record and he realized it didn't mean anything to him. 
And I, I've read about that with a, a number of elite athletes, uh, which is, again, why I go back to that question of like, well, are you oriented towards something that's actually really meaningful towards you? Because if you... And that goes also for relations. You know, like we always, we always turn it into athletes, but this is really for anyone. Or any, you know, like even in relations, even you know, like what, what are we achieving in our life, in business, in I mean, in whatever we do, how, how much we do, we really love what we are doing, and how much we are ourselves, or how much we, you know, following the dreams of other people. That's the that's the whole point. You know, I, how many times I had to wake up in in my life and say, "Wow, Joseph, this is this is not you. This is someone else. This is not you. Just wake up and just be yourself a little bit more." And stop to fulfill the dreams of other people. Just someone said that you're good in this. It doesn't mean you have to do it for the rest of your life. Maybe something has changed. Maybe you're getting older and maybe something else is coming into a play. And I want to allow myself to do that. I want to have enough of internal strength to say, yeah, that's it. And please don't ask me anymore about, yeah, what you've been doing this last year. No, I'm not doing it anymore because that's, that's just it. Now I'm moving into another phase. I, I just found an interest more in, I don't know, um, um, a painting or whatever. I just want to allow myself to just be as as I like to be. Sometimes, I think Carl Jung said, um, "You should never sacrifice the self you could become for the self that you are." Yeah, it's like the fundamental orientation. It's like you got to be the phoenix that keeps keeps allowing itself to burn off the, the the old and become become the fresh thing. Yeah, not easy. It's not easy. We we're very attached to the, our stories. Um, I read a great essay once. People can look up called uh, "Make Your Identity Small." Right? Mm-hmm. It's like the more the more things that you think I am this, I am this, I am this. Um, the more places you can get trapped between uh, between your self conception and the thing that actually motivates you and moves you towards what uh, what's meaningful to you. So we kind of came back again to the beginning. Yeah, we, we have, yeah. Um, I, I really love to, uh, man, I, I feel like I have so much more to talk about with you, um, but we're about an hour and 10 minutes in, and I think this is a kind of a nice coda to the conversation for yeah. now, um, but I really need to talk to you about uh, the body-to-body work and, and some of these other things. So maybe we can have another conversation. Does that sound good? Yeah, that sounds perfect. I'll be happy. Awesome. So, um, before we go, I just have uh, two more basic uh, housekeeping questions. One is, can you um, give us like five of the resources that you would recommend for the audience to kind of look into to uh, to understand more their practice and and to be able to to act on some of these things that we've talked about over the the course of the podcast? Okay, now this might sound crazy but i would say we need to have a look on the physics and you know like grab everything that you can um that it's accessible to your <laughs> to your level of understanding that limited then um uh, do a good literature read beautiful beautiful stories because what we are doing in our lives we are sharing the stories and and share sometimes the stories with other people what you believed or what you dreamed about Mm-hmm. Read Eating is Book of Changes, which is very beautiful because it's one of the most positive books in the world that even in the most difficult situations you can find kind of positive outcome. And that's very, very beautiful. And uh, then, I don't know, um, another source is be with, be with people. I mean, communicate and they, they, will, they will do job for you. <laughs> 
Okay, cool. That's great advice. Um, and then, uh, if people are interested in fighting monkey, uh, what do they need to know? If they want to come uh, and work with you. They don't need to know anything. If they are interested to explore and um, throw themselves into into irregular and unknown and um, they want to test something new out of themselves, they, I, I will only embrace them and I'll be very happy if they come. So I, I, perhaps I phrased the question wrong. I was just asking, like, uh, people find your, uh, your workshops on your website, fightingmonkey.net. Are you active on any other uh, forums that people should be aware of to, to stay up to date with your content? Yeah, it, not everything is always online, but it's a Facebook and it's our website, and um, there will be also another website that is coming out soon uh, with a special content. And then, of course, they they can just write us because we keep many or several of our events only for insiders, meaning that people share that information only between themselves. So we have a students that they call up a meeting and then we meet sometimes in Athens and have a special meeting. So not everything is formally organized for workshops. Okay. Excellent. Well, thank you again so much for the conversation. It was, uh, it was explosive. It was super fun. And, uh, I look forward to doing it again. Thank you uh, so much. Thank you. Inviting. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Absolutely.